Hey everybody, before we begin this bonus episode, would you like to score some major thoughtfulness slash unique gift points this Valentine's Day? Dedicate an episode of The Dirt to a loved one, or friend or family member or dog or guinea pig, it's up to you. Go to thedirtpod.com, head over to the news section, and for a single $25 donation, you can choose an episode topic and dedicate it to someone if you so choose, or do it for you. Love yourself. Support the show and give someone a gift we can guarantee they've never gotten before. So go to thedirtpod.com and go to the news section. Thanks! And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this is a bonus episode. Woo! So, uh-huh. a 2018 may have had its ups and its downs, but it also had its share of fascinating discoveries and developments that we are itching to learn more about. Yeah, so we've compiled a wish list of a few things that we want to hear more news about in 2019. We're sharing them with you so we can all keep our fingers crossed and then collectively geek out when something new comes to light. Right, yeah, and let's get right into it with that a juicy sarcophagus. Mm. Remember that? I do. That's a gross sound you just made. Um, (laughs) So, and also, not only do we remember this giant sarcophagus being excavated, but also when they popped that sucker open, uh, they discovered inside it a mix of sewage um, and some remains of skeletons and inscribed jewelry. So, Uh remember, yeah, there was that, that juice. Mm. Yeah, where there and, was an internet petition that like 22,000 people signed yeah, to, wanting to drink the elixir of life. It's not. It's, taste it's, that taste that juice. Oh. Um, and so the skeletons belonged to a woman between 20 and 25 years of age at the time that she died and two men in their 30s or 40s at time of death. Um, yeah, the remains were, were pretty uh, – is the word dissolved? <laughs> There wasn't much left of them. There was, yeah, there was, they were very much degraded. Uh, And one of the men had a small hole in his skull, indicating that he had undergone a surgical procedure called trepanation. And the inscriptions on the gold jewelry are hard to interpret, but one of them definitely shows the image of a snake. And so, you know, the, the, the skeletons had been in mummies. But those mummies were disintegrated beyond recognition. But one had a trace of an arrow wound in his head, which same, same trepanation. Yeah, I don't know if so. I it didn't say it didn't name the skeletons and then say A had a hole in his head and B had an arrow in his head. So I don't know if that hole is the same hole and was reinterpreted either as an arrow wound or then a trepanation or it could be trepanation um, in response to arrow wound. Um, yeah, well, I'm not sure. I couldn't find anything of, else about that. Lots of questions. Yeah. Um, and so a professor of ancient history at Yale University, Joseph Manning, said that while such finds are not especially unusual, this particular case merited further investigation. And he said, as far as I can see, there's no inscription on the sarcophagus, which is strange. Uh, you're not going to see someone important buried like this. So as if we needed any more reiteration of this fact... It is not Alexander the Great that nope. is buried in this sarcophagus. 
It is not. Sorry. So that one guy on and, Facebook. <laughs> and don't drink that juice. Don't drink that juice. All right. What other stuff? What other stuff happened, Anna? Okay, so um this has to do with DNA and America. Ready? Go. A genetic analysis of a baby's remains dating back 11,500 years suggests that a previously unknown human population was among the first to settle in the Americas. Isn't that cool? Very cool. I mean, I'm going to tell you more. That's not the only... Okay. I'm already excited. (laughs) Scientists recovered the DNA from an infant who was only a few weeks old when she died, so that's sad, Mm. um, buried at the Upward Sun River archaeological site in the interior of Alaska. The data indicated that the baby belonged to a group of people who were genetically distinct from humans in northeastern Asia, which we think is where the big migration into North America came from, um, across a land bridge that's not there anymore, but once crossed the Bering Strait. Right. But this data also showed that the group differed genetically from the two known branches of ancestral Native Americans. So the unexpected discovery of this new Alaskan population offers a a new perspective on the first people to settle in the Americas, and now we are starting to get a more detailed view of their migratory path. One of the reasons that this infant's remains were preserved enough for DNA was that um, she was buried in a pit below the frozen surface, Um, so she's basically um, kept refrigerated for a very long time, and her DNA was kept viable. And so there were two infants from whom DNA samples were collected and they were named um, Sunrise Child Girl and Dawn Twilight Child Girl in the language of the local indigenous community. Um, The researchers worked closely with native representatives while recovering and examining the remains and the rest of the archaeological site. So that's commendable. Previous explanations of how the Americas uh, became peopled, suggests that about 15,000 years ago, people crossed the Bering Land Bridge, which is otherwise known as Beringia, in this big migration wave, and then later dispersed to North America, and then later to South America. But more recent findings show that founding populations of Native Americans diverged genetically from their Asian ancestors, so the the group that they um, came from into like from Siberia into North America about 25,000 years ago. And that brought up the idea that humans settled in Beringia, the Bering Strait area for about 10,000 years before reaching North America. So this newfound Alaskan group, which they're now being called ancient Beringians, um, appeared about 20,000 years ago. So before that 10,000 year mark, um, while the native American ancestral branches showed up between 17,000 and 14,000 years ago. So this is a group of people that survived for quite a long time in a really like to me, what seems like a very inhospitable environment. So I'm really looking forward to finding more out about this new group of people. First of all, um, what happened to that population? Like if they can trace genetically where the right. descendants of that population ended up, if they, if those genes still exist. Maybe maybe the population has sort of phased out. I'm not sure. But also how they adapted to... Well, I guess if they sort of came over from Siberia, more or less the same environments. But anyway, yeah, I want to know more I mean, about their th- lives. That environment definitely changed. And so yeah. did, it, did, did they adapt by being incorporated into other uh, communities and then their genetic material would, would persist through right. the day? Um, or maybe they uh, were not as adaptable to changing climates. 
Yeah. Well, Who we'll knows? have to wait and find out. Yeah. I know. It's exciting. Oh, it's really awesome. Yeah. Um, also awesome, but on a sort of somewhat less profound to, well, I don't know. It is kind of profound to human existence. I'm talking about the world's oldest beer. Yep. We, we, we found some beer. Um, we did. Found it. There it is. Found it. Yep. And in a bit of a follow-up, a spiritual follow-up to our episode Ooh, on spiritual. the Spiritual. Good job. Ah, nice. Thank you. Um, to the world's oldest known liquid presumed wine, um, <laughs> let's get on some very, very old beer. Delicious. And so over in a, uh, a graveyard cave in Israel, I don't know if it's <laughs> a cave in a graveyard or a graveyard in a cave, again, it's the, the, the qualifiers. Um, it's so a cave in, Israel, in which people were buried. Okay. Okay. Uh, archaeologists have discovered traces of mashed wheat and barley lining pits carved into the bedrock. And researchers interpreted these residues as leftovers from beer brewing, uh, perhaps part of a funerary feast given the graveyarding. Yeah. Um, and this <laughs> is. They were all just like goths having a party in a graveyard. G- yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Um, or just kids. Yeah, just, just a bunch underage. of kids carving underage into bedrock underage brewers you know got high from the adults um and at the at the time the the story came out um it is the oldest known evidence for man-made alcohol because uh, there's are naturally fermenting things that yeah yeah this can, is on purpose yeah so this is yeah on purpose alcohol by the um, and by the natufians whom we've already at least once teased um but just to remind you of that first time i reminded you uh the natufians were a stone age culture that well were they stone age or were they paleolithic they weren't stone age because they weren't in africa i learned this recently that is very true they were yeah they were a paleolithic culture yeah okay that and so they lived in the in so they lived in Western Asia from around 15,000 to 11,500 years ago. And they will, they will get their own episode someday. Um, and so the Natufians established some of the earliest settlements in the world, of, of which we know. And uh, they may have been among the earliest people to domesticate plants and animals, as we kind of grazed upon. Ha, ha, ha. Um, <laughs> and that episode on, nice. on bread. And so yeah, had, so if they were making bread very, very early, it's really not that surprising that they were also making beer. Yeah, they were um, innovators, disruptors. Back in Israel at Rakafat Cave, uh, the the team, the research team, collected residue samples from the stone pits um, or or mortars, as they are called, that had been dug into the cave floor. Um, under a microscope, researchers saw damaged-looking starch granules. So these were like starches that had some bad breakups and like, <laughs> hadn't quite gotten over them. Um, they're in therapy now. They're they're getting better. Yeah. Um, not and- physically damaged. <laughs> Make sure to clarify. <laughs> um, and so these damaged looking starch granules were thought to be from wheat or barley that had been malted and mashed during beer brewing. And to test the hypothesis, yes, experimental archaeology, uh, the researchers conducted some experiments to look at how starch granules transformed during the brewing process. And to recreate a Tufian-style beer, they turned barley into malt, which they mashed and heated and left to ferment with yeast. Under the microscope, the modern starch granules matched the ones found at Rakafat Cave, 
And uh, the researchers reported on these findings in the Journal of Archaeological Science reports. Yeah, Yeah, they they reported in reports. Good. (laughs) Good job. Um, And so, yeah, we definitely want to learn more about both this specific story, but also, like, making that beer. Because I feel like this was very much like a step one, step two, step three, question mark, step four, profit, like, kind of thing. Right. But I, Where, I wish, like, what did you do, guys? Like, tell us what you did. Yeah. And why doesn't anyone ever videotape this stuff? Videotape. No. What, videotape. So analog. <laughs> why doesn't anyone put put this on the old Betamax? So we go from one cave to another. A single cave in the mountains of Siberia has produced a string of remarkable archaeological discoveries. I mean, you knew this one was going to be on here. It's Denisova Cave and the Denisovans. So in 2008... Scientists at Denisova Cave found a 41,000-year-old pinky bone whose DNA matched neither humans nor Neanderthals. Instead, it belonged to a previously unknown group of humans that they then called Denisovans. And then later, they also found three Denisovan teeth in that cave. Since then, traces of Denisovan DNA have been found in humans living today in Asia and Melanesia. So Melanesia is like Fiji, Papua New Guinea, that area. And so that suggests that a long time ago, humans and Denisovans met and had sex and had children. You know, that's how that works. So until this year, that was the entire sum total of our knowledge on the Denisovans. Now, uh, a remarkable new discovery from Denisova Cave paints an even more interesting picture, telling us that Denisovans also interbred with Neanderthals. And the evidence is pretty much as direct as you can get, a bone fragment in the same cave that, according to DNA analysis, belonged to the daughter of a Neanderthal mother and a Denisovan father. So there's going to be a lot more to come out of Denisova Cave, so we're going to save it for its own episode in the future. But this is really just an incredible discovery because it's evidence that a whole new type of human was living in Europe when Neanderthals and modern humans were also around. And in the meantime, if you want to learn in more detail about how they figured out the genetics of the Denisovan um, DNA specimens. You can, um, there's a great chapter on it in Adam Rutherford's book, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, which I'm currently in the middle of, and it's fantastic, and I'm really enjoying it. I like it so much that I'm in the middle of it for the second time, and I'm going to use oh. it to teach. Yeah, I. it was so oh, wow. good that I I was reading it from the library and then I ordered my own copy so I could mark it up and, and put tabs in it and use it to teach my, my classes. It's really great. Oh, good. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, so highly recommend. Um, Add it to the Dirt book list. All right. So this one this one's kind of small. Um, it's just 60,000 new Maya structures. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> that one deserves um, yeah, pew, so- pew, pews. Do you want me to get the hammer? No, no, no. I'm just saying, like, sometimes, admittedly, I apply... twist my arm. (laughs) Great. Do you like that? I did like that. I was just going to say that, like, admittedly, sometimes I do apply air horn to things that perhaps do not merit them. But this one really, really does. Like, everyday celebrations require... They merit air horn. Okay. But Let's this one definitely. Yeah. This yeah, one yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, more than 60,000 structures built by the ancient Maya were discovered by researchers using airborne LIDAR. So this is um, light detection and ranging. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually litter. But, yeah. Um, well, let's treat yourself to a vowel, why don't you? Yeah. 
this was in this was in Guatemala. So um, a couple months ago, in an episode of Old News, um, I talked about um, lidar being used for um, pre-European contact settlements and earthworks mm-hmm. in like South Carolina. Yep, yep. And remember that was like they were like, oh, we found like a billion of them in this county, and so like lidar can yield a lot of really exciting data and this is definitely what happened in guatemala and they announced this back in september Mm -hmm. Uh, just to refresh um listeners and anyone that didn't hear that episode um this technique uses laser light beamed from airplanes to detect structures making it easier to find archaeological remains that are obscured beneath thick forest canopy yeah and that is definitely case for a lot of um the landscape in which the ancient Maya lived. Mm-hmm. So um, very difficult and, to see anything if you're on the ground. But yeah, but if you have lasers in the yeah. sky, and, and so these new struct, the, these newly found structures include the remains of pyramids, palaces, houses, defensive fortifications, roadway networks, reservoirs, irrigation channels, and vast areas used for agriculture. Um, at which like that hits on a lot of aspects of life. Like it's not just, yeah, it's, it's not just like temples and pyramids and pyramids and palaces. Like this is it's infrastructure. Actually, yeah. It's infrastructure. And it's looking at like lived experiences of people far beyond just like elites. Mm-hmm. So this is awesome. And, um, this discovery suggests that about 11 million people lived in the Maya lowlands during the late classic period. And that was from about 650 to 800 CE. That's so many people. And so many people. Yeah. And, um, this also highlights the links between Maya's hinterlands and the urban centers. Yeah. Um, which is, is also really important because remember in that episode where we talked about the Maya, the Inca, and the Aztec, uh-huh. Maya populations were were never really imperialized. Like it, it didn't like Maya settlements and like Maya culture in ancient times didn't didn't follow like the same kind of uh, formula of of like like of empire and conquest. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and so it was much more a network of mm-hmm. of uh, populations. And so this is something that really lends a lot of light into that. Um, as it were. <laughs> yes, because lasers are um, light. I got your joke. Thank you. Thank you. I was just letting it breathe. <laughs> no, it really, the nose really developed. Um, Francisco Estrada Bailey, who is a, who is an <laughs> assistant professor of anthropology at Tulane and um, director of the Homo Archaeological Project, um, said, seen as a whole, terraces and irrigation channels, reservoirs, fortifications, and causeways reveal an astonishing amount of land modification done by the Maya over their entire landscape on a scale previously unimaginable. Yeah, so this is, just to clarify, none of this has been excavated yet, as far as I know. Yeah. It's all like, they. you can see the the, topographical imprint of these things. And so like sort of in the timeline of how people do research, you you get you find the sort of from topography, you find from a LIDAR survey, you can go that you can then say like, we want to go to these coordinates, we want to get a permit to go here and do ground survey. And so this is something that might be like a couple years out from excavating anything, but just like the amount of data you get just from yeah. Um, like the geospatial aspect is huge, but not only is this huge 
with huge implications just if we stopped and all went home today. But like over the next few to several years, this is paving the way for a ton of research um, being done in um, in Guatemala and then beyond that. Yeah. And so if somebody who is like the head of the archaeological project like and like is a Maya expert and says like this is this is a scale previously unimaginable, like that's wild. Yeah. Because like they can definitely imagine know. if this yeah. is what you've been like dedicated your your career to. So this is really awesome. And I think that this and also this helps people be like, well, we use they use LIDAR here. Let's use LIDAR here. Right. And so yeah, this yeah. is something that has implications for research all over the world. Can you imagine being Francisco Estranabelli and just like getting that photo back? Just being like, <laughs> being like, oh, God. What? Oh, 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 man. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. What a day. What a day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, moving on to Kazakhstan. We've never talked about Kazakhstan before. And we haven't. And I, which knew, is a bummer. I, I mean, yeah, but now we can. Big fan. <laughs> Big fan of Central Asia. Love your work. <laughs> Central Asia. Look into it. That's what I always say. <laughs> well, we should because I knew nothing about the history of this place or its people. So I was very excited to read about this discovery. So the graves and burial mound of two Iron Age teenagers have been excavated in Kazakhstan to reveal a treasure trove of fine items. Not like oh. they're fine. But, like, <laughs> fine. The team of researchers behind the excavation believe that the two teenagers, one boy and one girl, lived around 2,700 years ago. And their graves were found in a valley in the remote Tarbagatai. Did I do that close to right? Yeah, I think it's Tarbagatai. Tarbagatai Mountains, located in the eastern part of Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan, where the country meets northern China. So... Um, unfortunately, the grave of the minimal remains of the 16-year-old female has been looted, but the skeletal remains of the male teenager, who is believed to have been no older than 19 when he died, were undisturbed. The boy wore a golden torque around his neck, he had a golden bronze dagger in his hand, and was buried with a gold-plated wooden quiver holding arrows with bronze tips. Both of them were wearing finery that was once adorned with gold beads and had appliques of intricate miniature deer heads with massive antlers. So the researchers, led by uh, Zenola Samashev, director of the Margolin Institute of Archaeology, believe that the teenagers both belonged to the Saka, a nomadic people who spread out across large portions of Central Asia between the 8th and the 2nd centuries BCE. So the Saka people were expert horsemen who moved across the region for hundreds of years uh, before being eventually conquered by invaders from Turkey. So um, there have been lots and lots of these incredible rich burials discovered in this area. Um, and these elaborate graves of these two teenagers are only a fraction of that. But I knew nothing about it. And so I was really excited to include this on our list. Yeah, yeah. And the... Um just work on the Saka and and sort of both their grave goods, but also like studies into kind of pneumatic archaeology mm -hmm. um, and like the archaeology of nomadism in, in Central Asia is so cool. And it's something that um, unfortunately, like materials that go on display in, in museums and things, they don't, they don't really go far. Like the way that, 
um, like how when we were talking in Deep Cuts last month about the stuff from um, Saudi Arabia, yeah, that was like the first time that it had ever left the country, and people were like, "What? This is amazing!" And like anybody who had like been to the region and like been to museums is like, "Duh, yeah, it's awesome," but like it doesn't really make it out, and so we should make this our our goal. Central Asia, look into it. Okay. <laughs> Our, our mantra for 2019. Yeah. Let's, um, let's bring that energy to 2019. <laughs> Coming up next, we've got something sort of close to me, geographically, but very close to me. Spiritually. <laughs> Spiritually. Yeah. Um, is the Roanoke mystery solved? Question mark, question mark. One million exclamation yeah. points. So remember, re- okay, remember back in like 1587? Um, there, so, okay, let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about the lost colony of Roanoke, which is something that like freaked me out when I was a kid. Yeah. Hit me. The, the story of the lost colony begins a little bit before that on July 4th, 1584, when English explorers landed on Roanoke Island in present day, North Carolina. Um, the explorers were unex- unsuccessful in establishing a settlement. So a larger group led by a man named John White was sent there in 1587. Uh, so it was like backup. The explorers were unsuccessful. They all died. They were unsuccessful. Yeah, it's spin. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So they went, they tried to set up a colony and like it didn't take. And so they sent more people. John White and company. Start the same colony again. So like, I guess the true lost colony is... Like the the fifteen eighty four one, yeah. But um, so in fifteen eighty seven, John White and and company show up, um, and they don't have a lot of supplies. What <laughs> Great, could possibly good. go wrong? Um, the group soon found themselves in a desperate situation. John White then traveled back to England Bye. for reinforcements. Like a, <laughs> he just left across the ocean, um, and in fifteen eighty seven. You know, there was like this whole war, this, like the Anglo-Spanish War. So it delayed his return. It makes it sound like there's traffic. No, it was just so an armada in his way. Yeah. So he, you know, he heads back to England. But then, you know, he's stuck in traffic and he's like, oh, dang on it. And you know, he has to wait for like the entire armada to get out of the way. Uh, but when he finally did manage to get back to Roanoke, um, he got there in 1590. The entire settlement was deserted and there were no remains in sight. The only clue as to what happened was a fence post, sometimes known as a tree trunk. Yeah. Like in the story, uh, with the word Croatoan <laughs> carved into it. And Croatoan was the name of a neighboring um, Native American tribe. Yeah. And um, so that's the last we heard of it uh, from the colonists of Roanoke. And so people were like, oh, like, were they murdered by the natives? Were they eaten? Did they just get, did they just move in with them? Like what happened? Um, and then in 1937, a tourist from California walked into the history department at Atlanta's Emory University Hello. with the, <laughs> with a 21 pound engraved stone that um, researcher Ed Schrader and others think might be the most important artifact of the early American period, which, mm. okay. <laughs> All right. Don't look. All right. Um, on one side of the stone, which the tourist said he simply found in a swamp while traveling through North Carolina. Yep. Okay. As one does. Um, the writing appeared to constitute a grave marker reading, 
Ananias, Dare, and Virginia went hence unto heaven, 1591, Anye, Englishman, Shoe, John White, Gover, Via. I mean, there are some abbreviations, but thank you for That's reading it, it like a 1990s text-to-speech computer. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, I know. It's, it's like the accessibility feature on the iPhone that like, we'll just read what's on the screen. Yeah. That's, that's what I, that's what I did. You sure did. Um, I'm available. <laughs> um, the engraving on the other side of the stone, however, was much longer and isn't included here. Um, and no, a team of Emory, <laughs> a team of Emory scholars deciphered the message and they were shocked to discover the story it told. One describing two years of suffering due to sickness and war with local Native Americans, which like is it's not war, uh, that led to the death of virtually all of the colony settlers, including the writer's husband and child. So they're just like, tink, 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 tink. Yep. Okay. Dear diary. I see why this, I see why this stone is 21 pounds. Um, she had a lot to say. referred to John White as father. And sure enough, it was signed EWD, the initials of Eleanor White Dare. It looked as though Eleanor had left behind a story of the Roanoke colony and more or less settled the mystery of the settlers' mass disappearance once and for all. Um, indeed, the Emory team initially declared the stone was authentic. Within the next few years, a Georgia stonecutter found more than three dozen stones also claiming to have been written by Dare and which were soon deemed authentic they as well. They didn't have anything lighter so, to, to, to write something on? She's well, like, I need no. another page. Dunk. But wait, there's more. A twist. In 1941, Saturday Evening Post ran a devastating 11,000-word expose debunking the legitimacy of all the stones as a hoax <laughs> and revealing the Georgia Stonecutter to be a fraud thanks to a various evidence. Um, just like that, one of the most astounding discoveries was transformed into a pile of rocks Aww. and sent to sit in a basement at George's Brunel University. Which is like, which, like, go to your room. I'm glad they, like, they didn't just, like, throw them out. Be like, it's crap! And just, like, throw them out in the yard. Yeah. Um, no, they kept but, them. Yeah. But in um, 2016, Ed Schrader decided to take the original stone found in um, 1937 to the University of North Carolina for analysis. So I guess, in a way, he repatriated it to UNC. Oh. And he sliced off one end of the stone. <laughs> To discover that, in contrast to the darker exterior, the interior was bright white. Thus, any inscriptions made in the stone would have been that same bright white. Uh However, the inscription on the stone was much darker in color. Such darkening takes a very long time to occur, suggesting that the inscription was made in the approximate era of the Roanoke colony. So I, you know, like in night in the night, I like yeah. So the approximate era of the Roanoke colony being before the 1930s. Yeah. So and also like, didn't you just rub some dirt in it? Yeah. Well, I guess it would have to have been like a a chemical I, process. I bet. I bet there's also like the patina and like the oxidation that would have had to. Okay. Like, because it says in, in the 1930s, it would have been difficult to use chemicals because so it's... Just in general, it, in the 1930s, yeah, it was really hard to use d- chemicals. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> in a way it was. Um, and so, yeah, you'd want to mask the color. So it, I think it comes down to like oxidation. Like geochemics. Um, and, Ge- but yeah, now... I understand. But now Schrader wants to fund and a quote exhaustive geochemical investigation end quote that should go beyond the analysis described above being like oh 
Huh. Huh. <laughs> um, and perhaps prove once and for all whether the stone is legitimate. And before that, this fall, researchers planned to more thoroughly analyze the language inscribed on the stone in order to verify its authenticity. So then just make sure there's not a stray like, lol. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so also, I wonder how, if this is true, um, if this was written by Ellen or Dare, um, if how this story fits in with the the other um, kind of anecdotal right. evidence later where that it seems that there were um there were people in neighboring um indigenous communities that had like angle features like hair color and like blue eyes and things and like is it that they're they thought that there is a theory that the survivors of the Roanoke colony had been incorporated into right the local indigenous community and so like how does this fit fit in with that yeah but that would be good yeah to know. so if all this fails i guess lop off the bottom of that rock and see what's what's in there yeah huh all right okay let's um let's stay in the u.s and head over to kansas except kansas before kansas so a few years ago Donald Blakesley, an anthropologist and archaeology professor at Wichita State University, discovered the lost city of Etsanoa, located in present-day Arkansas City, Kansas. That's so confusing. Locals in this small town in south-central Kansas have been finding arrowheads, pottery, and other ancient artifacts in the area's fields and rivers for decades, but no one ever knew the full extent of the archaeological gold mine underneath their town. So Blakesley, this is from the Los Angeles Times, Blakesley used newly translated documents that had been written by the Spanish conquistadors who came across the area over 400 years ago to determine that these artifacts were once part of the Native American lost city of Etzanoa. And a quote from Blakesley says, I thought, wow, their eyewitness descriptions are so clear, it's like you were there. I wanted to see if the archaeology fit their descriptions. Every single detail matched this place. The city of Etsunoa is believed to have been around from 1450 to 1700 and was home to approximately 20,000 people. Blakesley said that the city was the second largest settlement in the present-day United States at the time and spanned across at least five miles of the space between the Walnut and Arkansas rivers. So uh, the other detail that we have from these manuscripts is that the inhabitants were said to have lived in thatched beehive-shaped houses. And then, this keeps happening... In 1541, conquistador Francisco Vasquez de Coronado came to town hoping to discover its fabled gold, but then he instead found people, um, Native Americans, in a collection of settlements that he called Quivira. And 60 years later, in 1601, Juan de Oñate led a team of 70 conquistadors from New Mexico to Quivira, also hoping to find gold, but they ran... <laughs> Guys! They ran into a tribe called uh, the Escansaques, who told them of the nearby city of Etsanoa. And so Onyate and his team. Nice. I know, nice move, guys. I know. To be like, good, um, have you checked over there? Good looking out. Well, yeah. And they're like, yeah, at Etsanoa. And they're like, oh, no. I mean, we heard about it 60 years ago, but we never bothered asking them what the, the city's name is. So you mean Kivira? Yeah. Do you mean Kivira? We call it Kivira. Kivira? Um, Any gold? Well, it gets better. Onyate and his team arrived at the city and were greeted peacefully by the inhabitants of 
Etanoa. However, things quickly went south. I'm looking for Kivira? You, you mean Etanoa? No, Kivira. They got gold there? Well, this is Etanoa and we don't have gold. Oh. Well, gotta conquer you. Uh, well, things... Twist. I know. What a, what a change. Things quickly went south when the conquistadors started taking hostages, which then caused the city's residents to flee in fear. Yeah. Yeah, it would. The group of conquistadors explored the vast area of more than 2,000 houses, but feared an attack from the people they dislodged and decided to return home. <laughs> On their return trip, they were then attacked by some thousand members of the Eskensake tribe, and a huge battle took place. Uh, the conquistadors lost and returned home to New they're Mexico. They're like, oh, hey, it's you guys again. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we got friends. We came back. You and what army? Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so the conquistadors lost that battle and returned home to New Mexico, never to come back to the area again. Well, French explorers came nearly a century later to that part of south central Kansas, but didn't find any evidence of Etzanoa or its people. It is believed that disease caused the untimely demise of the population. So, oh, so like just is it? But the, is there any reason to think that it's that the the conquistadors showing up and like yeah, probably taking hostages that like somebody like sneezed? Yeah, probably. Okay, like it over I the, didn't know if it was something like that or if how um the was it in our conversation about the. I think it was the Inca Empire had been kind of hobbled oh, by yeah, by that. illness because it got there, like illness got there before on, on the their Spanish roads. Got there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, I think I think it probably is directly related they to a hundred oh, years God. of white per, white person disease. So cool on brand. It's not the last one. Okay, up next, gonna get back to our back to our roots, sort of. Following an epic 20-year-long excavation in South Africa, researchers have finally recovered and cleaned the nearly complete skeleton of an ancient human relative, an approximately 3.67 million-year-old hominin nicknamed Littlefoot. So it didn't take them 20 years to excavate Littlefoot. It took them, it was just a 20-year excavation. No, it took them nearly that long to excavate the skeleton. You'll see why shortly. Oh, good grief. Um, so that's <laughs> Oof, I do not have that sticking power. Um, Littlefoot is likely a previously unknown species, the researchers said. In four newly posted studies, all available on BioArchive, which is spelled Bjorksiv, <laughs> meaning they are not yet published in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, the researchers delved into Littlefoot's anatomy. Their findings reveal that Littlefoot likely walked upright on two feet, so little feet, and probably had a nearly lifelong injury on her left arm. And the successful two-decade-long excavation of Littlefoot was, quote, almost a miracle, end quote. Study researcher Robin Crompton, a musculoskeletal biologist at the University of Liverpool in the United Kingdom, told nature uh, because the bones themselves were softer than the rock surrounding them in the Sturkfontein caves about 25 miles that's 40 kilometers northwest of Johannesburg what yeah so there was <laughs> there was precipitation in the cave that affected the bones and the rocks differently so not only were the bones overall softer than the rocks around her but some of her bones were like laying in a puddle and so they became kind of like paper thin 
and then others of the bones were outside of the puddle and were better preserved. So it's just like this. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, that's why it took 20 um, years. Whoa. Researchers first came across Littlefoot's remains in 1994 when Ronald Clark, a paleoanthropologist at the University of Witwatersrand, yeah. Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, found some small bones and a collection of fossils recovered from these Sturkfontein caves. The collection was previously thought to contain ancient monkey bones. Um, wait, mm, nope. Monkey bones. <laughs> Monkey bone. Starring Brendan Fraser. Um, no. Remember that? But an analysis no. No. But an analysis revealed that some of the bones were something else entirely. The scientists dubbed the newfound specimen Littlefoot because its foot bones <laughs> are quite small. That was directly copied from the article. Just stellar journalism. Wow. Go ahead. Thanks for connecting those dots for us. Yeah. Sir or madam. Uh, the newfound little foot specimen is more than 90% complete. Isn't that awesome? Which, yeah, which far exceeds the status for Lucy, whose skeleton is about 40% complete. So is, um, was there, is there any reason to think there was more of Lucy than what no, was they, able to be recovered? No, they excavated like, was it like really a technology? thoroughly. Nope. Okay. No, it was... I, I didn't, because it, okay, because it sounds like what they used to uh, recover a little foot it seems like there might have been um advancements they were found in, in different like just environments the, the though oh okay all right so it's nothing lucy i don't think lucy was found in They're a just... cave and so okay. her skeleton was was incomplete for several reasons oh oh um, Littlefoot has been classified as a member of the genus Australopithecus, much like much like the famous Lucy, who was an Australopithecus afarensis, mm-hmm. who lived about 3.2 million years ago. Just as its name implies, Australopithecus, which means southern ape, is an ape-like hominid. You know, I'm glad you walked us through that, but... <laughs> What, who is your audience that you're like, just like its name implies, Australopithecus versus like low foot, got low feet. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's definitely it's just a, like people who are like bilingual in Latin, in like Latin and English. <laughs> um, so the hominin group includes humans, our ancestors and close evolutionary cousins, such as chimps and gorillas. In in essence, hominins are bipedal primates that have increased brain size. That's us. That's us, and we're going to talk about them more in a couple days. Yeah. If you're listening to this the day we release it. Yep. But Ugh. the team that excavated her think that she's a member of a different Australopith species. That's still up for debate. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to talk uh, more about hominins like Littlefoot um, very, very soon. Like probably. Littlefoot. Probably tomorrow. Littlefoot, little show. Well, what, what do you put on a Littlefoot? You put a little sock on it. A little sock. Yeah. So this is just a fun story to close this out here. Let's talk about a sock. This is a vibrant and colorful sock. I mean, it is. It's a stripy little colorful sock that dates back to 300 CE and is believed to have been meant for a child's left foot. And at first I read that and I was like, well, how do you tell? A sock is like a a bag for your foot. But this one has um, separated out toes. It's like a little toe sock. So you can tell where the big toe goes. So you can tell what foot it's from. And it features... Um, the traditional Egyptian style of one compartment for the big toe compartment. <laughs> this is my toe compartment. <laughs> the sliding door. <laughs> uh, the traditional <laughs> Egyptian style of one compartment for the big toe and a larger one for the other four. 
And so you could wear your socks with your sandals, your flippy flappies. So the sock was first discovered in the 1913-1914 excavation of a landfill in the Egyptian city of Antinoopolis. It is now in the hands of researchers at the British Museum in London, with, where with the help of new non-invasive technology, they can better unravel the sock's history. <laughs> so the researchers published their findings in PLOS One, and they used multispectral imaging, which is MSI, if you want to be hip and cool and use acronyms. Um, and so multispectral imaging is a technique that scans artifacts and detects small hints of colors and then um, basically produces like a really vivid technicolor version. And so you can really, really see differences in the coloration. And so um, you can then also use those color uh, readouts to figure out what components made the dyes. And so... MSI allowed the team to discover that the colorful striped sock was created using only three dyes. Matter, which uh, created a red dye. Woad, which creates blue. And Weld, which is yellow. Um, so yeah, the primary colors. Go figure. Um, and we'll post pictures of the sock and lots of other things from this episode. Um, but yeah, this that's just... What? Huh? Matter, Woad, and Weld? Yeah, those are the names of the plants that are that are used to create the dyes. <laughs> They're most of them. What are, is this Dungeons and Dragons nonsense? I mean, they are old English words. You are correct. <laughs> I'm like mad about. That. Okay, are you mad or matter? Cool. Well, thanks for listening. <laughs> we'll be back in your ears very soon, and you can put us there via SoundCloud. Apple Podcasts, or the podcast platform of your choosing, but not Spotify. Not Spotify. And not Pandora yet. Not yet. But you can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. Yep. And you can find that all together at thedirtpod.com. And you can send us an email about your thoughts about Matter, Woad, and Weld at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And you can support us on Patreon. You can become a monthly subscriber or a single-time donor. Either way, we would be extremely grateful. And you can do that at patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast. We hope you enjoyed our little bonus episode, and we will talk to you very soon. Thanks for listening, and everybody. tell your friends about us. Yeah, tell your friends. Tell people you know about us. Yeah, please, spread the dirt around. Spread that dirt. Okay, bye. 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 bye.